Conversations. This is your host, Daquana Farrow, and I'm really excited for the subject matter that we are talking about this month. We talked about suicide prevention and awareness uh, with Felicia L. Poe on our last episode, and today's episode is a episode that is near and dear to my heart as my family has been impacted by domestic violence, and so this is a really, really important episode to me. Um, in fact, uh, the last time we covered domestic violence awareness, um, my sister, Dewan Culpepper, was our guest. Uh, domestic Violence Awareness Month was launched nationwide in October 1987 as a way to connect uh, and unite individuals and organizations working on domestic violence issues while raising awareness for those issues. Over the, thir the past 30 plus years, much progress has been made to support domestic violence victims and survivors and to hold abusers accountable and to create and update legislation to further those goals. And the next person that is a part of our show is someone who is yet working to ensure that those goals are met. As the founder and owner of Yet Still I Stand, she shares her personal story to empower and uplift others while also providing resources to those who may be suffering in silence. She also provides one-on-one -on -one coaching, consulting. Um, she does group workshops and formal training on trauma-related issues, as well as subjects pertaining to healing, growth, and resilience. She has degrees in social psychology and human resources management, and she uses her experience to serve youth and young adults or adults who have and are facing difficult circumstances in their life. I am so excited to welcome to our show today, um, domestic violence survivor and award-winning author. Let us salute Sarah uh, Austin. We're so glad to have you today. So glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So glad to have you today. Um, and always uh, grateful uh, to those who are vulnerable enough to share some of the darkest and most challenging times in their life with us. I'm so excited to have you here. We will dive into uh, the, the, the nitty gritty of your story. But first, I start every episode with every guest with a this or that. So I got to ask, uh, Tara, coffee or tea? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> um, I would say that sweet tea is probably my biggest weakness. So I'll have to go with that one. Sweet tea. What about you? Uh, I'm definitely, I love coffee. Don't get me wrong. But I think my first love is tea because that's what my mom would let me have first. And she always made tea. Always, always. Made tea. <laughs> I love them both. But I think, <laughs> I think tea might have a little edge, just a little bit. Um, so uh, I got to ask the question, summer or fall? 
Falls, my absolute favorite until it starts getting like super cold. Super cold yes. um, but Falls, my absolute favorite. Fall is my favorite too. I am in heaven right now. Yeah. Cool, <laughs> crisp morning, little warmer afternoon, cool in the evening, like so perfect. It is perfect. This is what my corner of heaven is going to look like. So we can be neighbors. <laughs> so I got to ask good movie or good series? Good series. Good series. Good, get, get a good 30 minutes and turn it off and walk away. Yeah, because I don't have a lot of time to watch TV. So if I can get little pieces at a time, that, that works out better for me. And then, you know, I have something to look forward to on my downtime. So that's good. Staycation or vacation? Vacation. Vacation. I've only had a couple in my entire life. Really? Looking forward to adding more of those. So Must. yeah, Must. it has to be my favorite. <laughs> what's, your, what's your favorite vacation location you've been to? Destin, Florida. Okay. Yeah, we'll take the beach. Uh, I don't know. I went to Hawaii once. It wasn't really a vacation, though. I was okay. there to babysit. Um, so I think I'd like to visit that again just to see, you know, if yeah. that tops the list. Definitely better beaches than Destin, I'm just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> and the the big question everyone wants to know, Apple or Android? Apple. Okay, good. Wonderful. Don't seem <laughs> disappointed because we're proud of you. Okay. Good choice. Good decision. Uh, so thank you so much. I want to talk about this amazing book that you wrote uh, based upon the story of your life as a survivor. And you do talk about um, early in the book, you you all can get this amazing book uh, on uh, Tara's website, but you can also you can also go to Amazon because I found it on Amazon. I'm a big Kindle girl. So if I can get a book on Kindle, um, Kindle for my Apple devices. <laughs> no, no, nobody needs to worry about me. But you can grab this title on Amazon as well as her website, which will make sure that you have that and scrolling across the screen uh, at different points during the show. Uh, but if you're listening to us simply over the podcast, um, outlets it is www.yetstillistand.com so what uh, motivated you to tell your story what motivated you to tell your story Tara? there was a little bit of motivation before i realized it was motivation um and that was when people would come to find out even just parts of my story they'd be like you have to write a book this should mm -hmm. be a movie <laughs> wow. and so um, as I went through my healing journey and just realized, you know, I came into contact with so many people going through so many difficult times. Um, and I was always somebody that they seemed to be drawn to where they felt like they could talk. Um, and so in learning all of that and in going through my healing journey, I really wanted to be able to utilize what was meant for bad for me, um, mm -hmm. And, and turn it into something good and meaningful um, and be able to provide encouragement and hope to others that are going through a hard situation. Mm -hmm. So, so people, so people motivated you yes. in terms of being able to tell your story because they would hear a bit in a piece of your story and say, you got to tell this, you got to tell this whole story. Right. Right. Okay. So um, when you begin to tell me about your process, so the process of actually, so you see, hey, everybody said, Tara, you got to write it down. You got to write it down. Tell me about your writing process, because everybody's writing process is different. Um, I've heard some people say it was therapeutic. I've heard people say it was 
the most challenging thing they've ever done. Tell me about your process. It was probably a combination for me. Um, there, it was therapeutic for me in the sense that there were some things that would come up as I was writing that I realized, okay, maybe I need just a little more healing in that area. So I think that that's good because I think healing's a journey. It's not a, uh, a quick thing that occurs, um, especially when it's been years and years of abuse. Yeah. And so it's always good to be open as you're going through different things than to find places where there may be additional healing needed. And so it was therapeutic in that sense. Um, otherwise, it was slightly challenging just because um, as you're going through and telling your story, it, it's difficult sometimes to determine how much is too much. Um, so do you give all of these details and possibly people miss the message? Um, but you also want to make sure you give enough details so that it's relatable and people understand the story. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably my most challenging part. And I did just because there were some emotions that came up at different times that I wanted to work through. The actual writing process did not take very long. It was more so writing a little bit and putting it away for a while. Mm -hmm. And then coming back to it and writing a little bit more and putting it away for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and then the end process was really just making sure that I that I had the message in there that I wanted to ensure that people were able to receive. So mm -hmm. it was a process. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So you were you, so your book, your book, um, which I think is an amazing title. Like I said, I have it on my Kindle. Um, you start at the beginning. That's that's. First of all, there's a beautiful poem. Did you and you wrote that poem? I did write that poem. There's a beautiful poem at the beginning, uh, before the book even goes into detail on the introduction and, and whatnot. A beautiful poem called "Human Shield," which is it. It is it. It gave me goosebumps. And then you talk about uh, you talk about your life from the beginning. Yes. Talk about your childhood of the beginning and how you believe that it contributed to who you are today. So there were a couple of different aspects that I think really contributed um, to my journey, I guess. Um, and one is that my biological father was not really actively involved in my life. Um, there wasn't a lot of communication. I get, didn't get to know him very well. And so there was always that void where you, as a child, feel abandoned and there's just a deep void when maybe a parent is not involved and you would like them to be. Mm -hmm. um, so I had that aspect going on. And then my my mom had remarried and um, I was about five um, when my stepfather started abusing me. Mm -hmm. And so I was experiencing initially um, it was the experience of sexual abuse um, and then went further into emotional abuse and physical abuse as well. Um, and so growing up in that type of abuse and enduring that type of abuse mm -hmm. is very challenging when it comes to, uh, you don't really have time to determine who you are and what you like and the things you would like to get involved in and, and things like that, because you're in survival mode. Mm -hmm. And so that time period that went on from the time I was five until I was 17. And so it was my entire childhood, essentially. Um, and it, 
took a toll on me and my views of myself and my views of others and situations and um, really kind of almost had a lack of hope of having anything different. And sometimes you don't even know that there's something better that you could have. Um, so there was a lot involved in what really got me to the part in the journey where I was experiencing domestic violence. Mm. So childhood abuse and dealing with abuse in several different forms. And you you just made a statement that, that leads to a question that I was really going to ask you. At what point in your life did you realize that that was not normal or acceptable behavior that you were experiencing at the hand of your stepfather? Even when I, when it initially began, children just have a sense when something is not right. Um, so it didn't, it didn't feel right. And I knew I didn't like it. So I felt like something was wrong. Um, but you don't, you don't know, like you don't know what it is. Right. And so um, it was probably maybe later in my elementary years to early middle school when I'm like, okay, everybody is not experiencing this type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it became very clear to me at that point that I wasn't wrong in thinking it was wrong. Um, and there was a, a lot that went into that as far as that, um, I, I didn't have a lot of normal experiences. So even, you know, I, I talk about the fact that I could just be sitting there trying to watch cartoons and we had like a satellite dish and somehow he figured out how he could go out and change stuff on the satellite dish. So pornography would pop up on the television. Mm -hmm. um, so really every aspect of my life was controlled and manipulated some form of abuse. Wow. Wow. And so were you the only child in the home at that time? I was not. Okay. Uh, well, I was at five, um, but my sister was born when I was almost six. Okay. Um, she was his biological daughter and or is his biological daughter. And so um, I guess there was a separation for him with that. And so I, I was the victim of, of what he wanted to do. And um he did not do those same things to my sister. Because you were not blood related to him. Correct. Uh -huh. That's what I'm assuming was the reason behind that. Gotcha. Okay. And so by the time you were in elementary, middle school, you're like, this is not, I know it's not right, right? This is not okay. Right. Um, I don't like what I'm experiencing, how I'm feeling. Um, and essentially your childhood was robbed from you in a lot of ways because- at the times you, like you said, you were in the developmental phases of what you like and who you like to hang out with and places you like to go and things you like to get involved with. You're really concerning yourself when the next time is that you will have to suffer abuse. Right. And of someone that is supposed to be there to protect you. Yes. And um, when is it, do you recall, Tara, that you actually told anyone about it? Or did you ever in your childhood years tell anyone about it? Um, there, I forget what it's called. There's a terminology to it to where as a child, I would play in my head mm -hmm. telling people about it and like maybe how they would respond and what I would say and things like that. So that was more so what was occurring. Mm -hmm. um, there was very little shared, actually shared. <laughs> um, and 
there was, it was just a different time mm -hmm. in that, in that era. Yeah. Um, it was also a different place. Mm -hmm. So I was growing up in a place that there weren't a lot of resources. Okay. And um, so there weren't a lot of resources, whether it's financially or support or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and there that was still during a time period where what happens behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. Um, and so you don't even know who you can reach out to for help. Right. So, so just, just the, the, so there was this, and this is good because this dives into some of the psychological behind what you were dealing with, but Essentially, as a child, your way to unburden was to imagine, if you will, that you were explaining to people what you had been through, right? So right. that was almost a way of, of, of you in your mind saying, well, I, you know, I, I shared it because if, you know, this is, if I were to share it, this is how I would share it, right? Right. And those reactions that you perceive people would have to you telling them, what kind of reactions did you imagine people would have if you were to tell them? Do you remember? I don't remember. Mm -hmm. um, that is not something that I, my brain did something a little bit different than mm -hmm. some people's brains do um, in protection mode. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it'll block out the the bad things um, to try to protect you. Well, <laughs> mine, I can vividly remember a lot of the bad things, but cannot remember a lot of the good things. Wow. Um, and so there's a lot of that that I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another like coping mechanism that I had started to use that I didn't, of course, realize was a coping mechanism at that time mm -hmm. um, and didn't know how common it was for kids who do experience, um, especially sexual abuse, was I had started cutting mm -hmm. at one point as well. And I just remember feeling, it almost made me feel better mm -hmm. and, and understanding that now as an adult, um, the emotional pain of that can be so hard mm -hmm. to deal with that having some form of physical pain actually takes that emotional pain away for a mm -hmm. short period of time. And so um, that was something I had utilized as a, as a coping mechanism for a period of time as well. So self-harm. Yes. And how old were you when you recall first doing that? I would say roughly around that same time period that I had talked about before, maybe late elementary, um, maybe it might have started late elementary, early middle school. So. Mm -hmm. And did uh, did like so you were at school, did any any of your administrators, teachers, anything suspect that anything was going on with you or they you, they viewed you as a typical kid in, in, in the neighborhood from where you were from? They didn't say anything to me. So oh. I don't know. I can't imagine that I seemed normal. Mm -hmm. um, I was extremely introverted. And um, I, I often tell a story that even standing up to have to go sharpen my pencil was absolutely dreadful. Too much attention. I don't look at me. Please mm -hmm. don't call on me for any questions. <laughs> like, yeah. um, So I had that going on. And then I, like, I didn't play or do anything like that. So I would just think that I would have stuck out more than most kids, most kids. Yeah. 
Okay. And so you made it through high school. Um, and you say about 17 years old is when, when the abuse stopped. What do you think made the abuse stop in that situation? I left home. You left home at 17. I left home at 17. I still had my senior year to finish of school. Um, mm -hmm. And I left home and got a full-time job and got an apartment and wow. worked to finish school. And <laughs> took a leap. Yes, took a leap. Okay. All right. So then after that, I, I'm sure you were still grappling with childhood abuse, sexual abuse, this manipulation and every possible facet. And then you go into adulthood. And what was early adulthood like for you? Well, I wasn't even an adult when I met who was now my ex-husband. Mm -hmm. um, so I was 17. He was five years older than me. He was 22. Um when I met him and we started talking and he, it, I term it in the fact that I went from abuse to abuse. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't really get to experience a normal early adulthood either. <laughs> so. Wow. And do you believe that in a lot of ways that you normalize in your mind, right? While you knew it was not right and it didn't feel good and it was not a positive situation, do you think you normalized that as an experience with someone of opposite sex? Is that is that what you, do you feel like maybe subconsciously you did that? I think that when you're used to, for instance, with, with my ex-husband, when we first started dating, he didn't talk nice to me, mm -hmm. but that wasn't something that was abnormal to me. And what it did was it it motivated me to try to look at what do I need to be doing better? What am I doing wrong? Because oftentimes those who are abusing try to twist things and make it look like it's your fault, like it's your fault that it's happening. Mm -hmm. And so I worked really hard to try to figure out what I needed to do to make it better. Mm -hmm. um, and the physical abuse did not start until I became early, pregnant early on in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one, love is an essential need that everybody has. And I didn't feel extremely loved. And so I was looking, you know, that quote, uh, looking for love in all the wrong places. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was definitely the wrong place and it wasn't love. Mm -hmm. um, but I became pregnant early on. And that is when the physical abuse began. Really? Yes. So you were looking, you were looking for validation. You were looking for acceptance with someone that would of course, say that they loved you. Um, and so you became pregnant, you had your child and the abuse, abuse began. And what kind of abuse specifically are you referring to when you say the abuse began? And I wouldn't term it that way. I, the abuse began when we started dating because that was emotional Perfect. abuse and verbal abuse. Yes. yes. Um, so I don't want to separate that. But the mm -hmm. physical abuse began at the time that I found out I was pregnant um, and he wanted to get married right away. And I was nervous. <laughs> so here I am very young, hadn't even completed my senior year of high school yet, was pregnant, already dealt with so much trauma. And he was pushing me for marriage. And I was at that point thinking, I'm not sure that this looks like what I want it to look like. Yeah, right. And so I simply had 
talked about us, you know, giving it some time for that. Um, I didn't say absolutely not or anything like that. And he was livid. Mm. And so at that moment, he picked me up and threw me against the wall. Um, and that's when it began as far as the physical abuse began. And what was going through your mind here at that point? Like, hey, I express myself. I use my voice. I said that this is probably something I didn't want to rush into. And then you're thrown against a wall. And what are your thoughts at that point in time? I was scared. Um, I didn't know what to do at that point. Uh, and I, but the one thing that kept me strong mm-hmm. was that not only I wasn't just looking out for myself from mm-hmm. that point on, I had my son. Well, I didn't know he was my son, but my baby yeah. um, that there was another being that I was looking out for. And so that's what kept me motivated to trying to be better. I wanted to make sure that Mm -hmm. he had the life that he deserved. So you went into extra survival mode, right? You had a little bit to look out for. Yes. Okay. And so that was the beginning of, I'm assuming, what would be a string of physical, emotional, mental abuse. Yes. Um, And so you have your child. And did things get any better when you had your child? Was that a happy time for you at all? I mean, it was happy for me because... You had a baby. baby. Yeah. And fell in love even before I had him. But once I saw him, I was like, oh, my. <laughs> like, yes. You just can't explain that kind of love. Right. So, um, but otherwise, no, it was not happy. Um, we weren't married yet. So he was threatening at that point that he was going to kill me and take my baby. Hmm. if I didn't marry him. And so married shortly after, um, of course, not healthy thinking, but I'm thinking, okay, this is what he keeps stressing every time he's being abusive. Um, Maybe if this is fixed, it will get better. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also didn't want the alternative with what he was threatening. So um, not long after I had my baby, though, um, I had just had him about three weeks prior and he determined that he was not okay with the fact that I needed a healing time. And so he decided to take a gun and put it in my mouth and for the course of a night, um, rape me on and off. And so that was one of the scariest times of my life because my baby is in another room and I didn't think I was going to make it. Mm. Um, and so that is when it became even more intense. Mm-hmm. Did he, at this point in time, between the time you became pregnant and the time that you had the child, did he accuse you of not being faithful to him or wanting to be to him because you were not interested in rushing into marriage? I don't think that was ever anything he said. Okay. Okay. I don't I was... remember that being anything he said. I do know that there are people who have and other people's stories include that. Okay. Okay. And so literally you are in a room with your child in the next room and the father of your child has you to gunpoint and rapes you the entirety of a night. And how is it that you then recover from that to the extent that you're able to be a mom? So 
I was able to keep that separate mm-hmm. somehow. Um, I'm not sure how, yeah. <laughs> um, but I was able to keep that separate somehow. And, you know, with, with the abuse and the, the rape, mm-hmm. um, I, you have to go on almost like it's not happening. Um, and then, you know, with my son, like he was my everything. So that is what gave me pure joy was to be able to take care of him. And so somehow that was just a separate situation for me. So you're able to compartmentalize. This is, this is my child. I got to do what I got to do. Mama bear mode. Right. This situation is a situation that I have to deal with as a residual effect of the fact that this is his, his father. Yes. And um, so do you recall at any point that your son experienced or witnessed your abuse? I know that. So we, we got married not long after I had my son mm-hmm. um, and the abuse didn't stop as I'm sure you assume. And it didn't stop and it actually continued and got worse. I did have a second son a uh, little one day short of a year later mm. And so they're, they're one day short of a year apart. Mm -hmm. Um, And they did witness things. Um, They were so young that in my mind, as I would go through this and what was best for them, it was, he's not hurting them. Mm. And I was worried about breaking up my family unit. And so, um, and, but there were times that I had tried to leave, but he had always been able to locate us. And then he'd make threats against the people that would be helping. And so um, then you start getting worried about, is he going to hurt somebody else and feel responsible? You'd feel responsible for that. Um, So that was another method that he used to try to keep me bound in that situation. Um, But what caused me to leave and successfully leave mm-hmm. was when my boys were one and two. Um, I had been working a part-time job and came home and he had abused them. Oh, wow. And that's where I drew the line. Um, yeah. I knew that, you know, leaving is a dangerous time, of course. Um, but I knew that they deserved a life that was much better than that. They deserved mm-hmm. peace and safety and and all of the things. Um now I understand that I also deserved that. But at that point in time, my boys were my motivator. And so I was able to, I waited, we had one car, which is a whole nother portion of the story, but we had one vehicle at the time and he worked a night job. I had to wait until he got, he left for work and I took pictures of the abuse. Um, and then I waited until he got home in the morning and went to bed and I got my boys in a diaper bag and left in the car and went and filed um, a report with children's services and got things started in that regard. And then I also was soon after able to file for divorce. Wow. So there were several attempts along the way to get free until you were actually free from the situation. Yes. But it was not until you saw the abuse toward your children. that was like, Hey, the buck stops here. It's a right. No. Right. So there was and- a, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, you know, just because you leave doesn't mean you're free. 
um, because they typically, you know, abusers don't typically wish you well as you as you're leaving. There's still control and manipulation and trying to um, still threaten you and do things. So I still experienced, you know, stalking and threats and the ju- justice system, if you would like to call it that. Um, so many things that made it so difficult to actually become free. Um, and so there was a, a long process even in that regard. Wow. So so your, your attempts to get away um, and then eventually become free. Um, and then you said the justice system's involvement with your divorce. And I'm assuming uh, were privileges to the children uh, suspended or stopped or did it take time to get to a point where, you know, the kids could be safe uh, so, from having to be subject to? That, that was, that was very difficult. Um, so the charges were filed. Uh, they were domestic violence charges against the boys. And because I had the pictures and everything, um, I was, he pled guilty to one charge and had one dropped. Um, But the situation in domestic court was hard because, you know, I've explained all the things and, you know, all the experiences and you would like a little more help than what I received. And so they were just, they had him start with supervised visits, which the boys they would like cry so much before they had to go. And it was awful. Um, And we had to worry about our safety as we were arriving or leaving. And, you know, so many different factors that the courts don't think about. Um, And they were going to make him do a psychological evaluation and then anger management classes. And then once he completed those things, he was going to have unsupervised visits. And I knew I knew how detrimental it was for that not to occur. Right. Um, Thankfully, he did not show up to a lot of the supervised visits and he did not follow through with the other things he needed. So they did like a temporary, um, I can't think of the words, where they took away rights temporarily for him to have um, visitation and things. Um, And in the meantime, he assaulted another lady. And so that was happening afterwards. Um, And then, so I was able to, you know, have them protected away from him, but he would show up at my job. He would show up at our church. He would show up at my apartment. Um, So that still wasn't a time of freedom. Mm. Um, And there was one point in time that, there was a a short period of time where I did not hear from him and I was so thankful. Um, But you're still always looking over your shoulder just Mm -hmm. because you never know when they're going to pop back up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I received a letter that was hand delivered to me by his mom um, from Georgia. And it was a letter where the envelope was stamped with a detention center stamp. And he had been, a police officer. He had worked in law enforcement. And so I thought, well, I'm sure that employees don't have their letters stamped. 
So I contacted the detention center and was able to um, provide them some of my background, let them know that I was in fear of my life because in this letter he was stating he was coming back to get us. And they put me through to the prosecutor's office and the prosecutor wanted to know all of the details of everything I experienced with him. And what they told me at that time was they couldn't give me a lot of information about the case, but that he had been charged with murdering a new wife. Jesus. And um, that everything I described is how he murdered her. They said that it was the most brutal case that they had ever dealt with um, and that they needed to use me as a similar transaction witness in the case. Um, so they listed me as such. Once I got listed as a witness for the case, um, I received a death threat. And so they told me that they were only going to utilize, um, you know, my testimony if absolutely necessary, if they thought they were going to have to have it for a conviction. Um, but they were able to get a conviction of murder um, without my testimony. That is so, 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 so heart-wrenching, I'm sure, uh, because... There were many times where you fear for your life and you had good reason to fear for your life. Weapons were pointed at you on many occasions. And then to hear that that he actually followed through with someone else, but it wasn't you. Um, it must have validated in your mind because I'm sure there were at times, you know, like, Hey, he's not able to have a relationship with his kids or, you know, um, as women, we, 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 we have a lot of empathy sometimes. And it's like, oh, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? And, and to validate all of what you have been saying all along, all along. But the fact that it had to get that far for somebody to actually listen to the fact that this person was capable of what they said they would do. Yeah. How does that make you feel, Tara? So I never questioned if I was doing the right thing and trying to keep the boys away from him and try to keep us protected because I knew what he was capable of. Mm -hmm. um, I found out that I wasn't the first rodeo as far as domestic mm -hmm. abuse was concerned with him. And so he had a pattern of abuse. It had gone very far with me. Um, and I experienced, you know, not that the gun in my mouth and the rape were enough, but, you know, I experienced non-lethal strangulation and the attempted smothering and just the, the beatings and all of, all of the things that you can imagine. Um, and what was hard for me is getting the courts to listen. Even my own attorney was taking calls from him off, off her regular time. And was telling me that if I wasn't nicer to him, that she was not going to be able to be my attorney any longer. So that's what I was dealing with, was those types of things as I was going through that process. So one of the first things I did when I found that out was contacted that attorney. And I let her know what he did. Wow. And because I wanted them to understand, you can't take this stuff lightly. Like people's lives are at stake. At stake. Literally at stake. And I truly grieved for a woman I had never met Sheesh. when I found out that she was, that she had been murdered um, because she lived what I was afraid of living. Um, and they had a daughter 
of, I believe she was about four months old when he had killed her. And so it replayed in my mind, like the being raped at a gunpoint and just having had a son, you know, this was a woman that wouldn't get to see her daughter grow up and her daughter wouldn't be able to know her. Um, and so there were so many things that I was experiencing in that grief process um, as I was grieving for her. You lost your person. So it was it was a very difficult situation for me. And I had actually talked to the prosecutor's office to find out what my chances were of being able to get custody of her so that she could grow up with her brothers at least and I could try to protect her and have her grow up in a normal life, which is something that I would have wanted for my boys if okay. the same thing had happened to me. And so I found out though that um, her family was also trying to fight for the baby. And the same time that I received a death threat for being a similar transaction witness, they received a death threat or they're assuming that they received a death threat at that same time period because they withdrew the fight for the baby. And so his mother raised the baby her entire childhood. Wow. Ooh, so let's, Tara, that's a lot. That is a lot. Um, and let me ask you about your journey to healing because I know that probably took quite a while to undo what you had experienced from the time you were five until right. the time that this person that caused so much grief in your adulthood was behind bars somewhere you did not, you knew for sure you didn't have to look up to see if he was around the corner. Although I'm sure that there were emotional and mental residue of that. Um, Tell me what, what started down, what started your journey to healing? What started it is, it, again, my boys were my motivator. I wanted to be the mom that they deserved. Um, and I wanted to show them what it was like to live in a healthy manner. <laughs> and so that's how it started, um, was just, and, and I would look at I was very observant. I would watch people. I always loved to people watch. So I would watch people and really try to figure out like, how are they just so carefree? Like, how can they just walk up and have conversations with people that they don't know? Like all these things that like people take for granted when you grow up um, with more of a healthy background. And so and I researched, researched, researched. I, you know, when it came to parenting and, you know, just anything. I was a reader. I would research things. And then I didn't just learn about them. I would start implementing things in my life. So I was extremely intentional about my healing. Um, it doesn't happen by accident. So, yes. and I, thankfully, I've always had some sort of support system. And so... It may not be the same people all throughout my life. Um, some of them are, but so I would have people to lean on and people to talk to and then also be very intentional. And I did some counseling and um, 
started volunteering different places that also I think helped me heal, even as I was volunteering and doing different things for other people. I think that was a good part of my healing journey as well. Um, and then honestly, like last year he was, he was released from prison. Mm. And so I had to determine because I lived a lot of years in fear of that time. Um, he got a life sentence, but I knew he was eligible for parole in 14 years. And I just, even the thought of it all during those years would cause me to live in terror. And I knew like when I got the death threat, for instance, somebody did that on his behalf. So I knew that there were people that I probably needed to be careful of that. I didn't know who they were all through the years, but knowing that there was somebody who, who all through the years would write letters and make sure I knew that he wasn't forgetting me and that he was determined to come back for his family. Um, and that person getting released and knowing that he has followed through, I was not like wrong <laughs> with the extent that he would go to. I had to determine once he got released, if I was going to live in that fear and that terror and let it consume me, or if I was going to move forward and allow peace to take over, of course, using wisdom, mm -hmm. um, but allow peace to take over so that I could live out the purpose that I feel I have on my life and build the life, continue to build the life that I want. Mm -hmm. And so that was a decision point for me last year. Wow. And, um, so a part of your journey, you like you said, was being intentional about what you consumed and your support system and who you were around. And so what what with the knowledge of the release of their father, how did that impact your children um, and what conversations did you have to have with them, if any? I did have conversations with them. Um, two of two of my boys are his biological children, they were adults by the time he was released. And so I had conversations with them that I didn't really get into detail about before. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to have a very normal childhood um, and not be burdened with the details of how crazy things were. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just didn't talk. They remembered the abuse that they had gone through at that time. Um, when I left. And so very little, but they remembered that they just didn't like him and that he had been mean. Um, and so they never wanted anything to do with him. So I didn't have to worry about questions like, can I see my dad or anything like that? Um, so at a, right before his release, as I was gathering documentation once again, because I had been sending stuff to the parole board every time he would come up for release or parole, um, and I was gathering information again and had the opportunity to go talk to a parole board member. And my oldest son wanted to go with me. So he was helping me gather the information. And as he was looking at it, because my oldest two boys were always like, we don't really know how to feel about it, about him getting released, because none of that was real. And they didn't have all the details. So like they didn't know what to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um but upon looking at all of that and getting all of the details, it became very real to him. 
Um, and when he went, he was passionately talking before the parole board member as well um, with us just hoping that somebody would listen. There was, I often asked them, you know, what can happen if he stays in? Who's going to be hurt if he stays in? Right. Nobody. Um, what are the chances that somebody can be hurt if he's released? He has a history of abuse, mm -hmm. um, but that didn't work. So, wow. So you made a choice, Tara. You said, I'm, I'm deciding not to live in fear in Tara anymore. Yes. Um, and that decision is the decision you made for you and the decision that you're helping others to make also. Um, so I applaud the work that you're doing. Um, I want to, to talk about um, your book. Uh, I know you, you, have, you do signings, you do events. I want people to be able to connect with you on your social media. So share your social media handles and where people can keep up with you. Um, and then ultimately, lastly, any advice that you would have some, for someone um, that is uh, in the shoes that you were once in? Yes, the advice that I would give is first to understand that you are valuable and you are worth standing up for and protecting and you deserve to live in peace and protection. And it is difficult. It's a difficult um, journey <laughs> to become free and to become healed, um, but it is so worth it. It's worth every step that you feel like you can't take anymore. Um, but taking one more step is, is all worth it um, because you have the opportunity to live the life that you deserve and build the life that you deserve. And so I highly encourage you to really take a look and, and understand your worth um, because they don't make you feel worthy. And so digging deep to understand that worth. And then there are so many resources out here. We weren't meant to do this alone. So you have the opportunity to connect with people who truly care about you. Um, and you'll see the National Domestic Violence Hotline number um, scrolling. And that number is 1-800-799-7233 or you can text START to 88788. And they're able to connect you with resources that you may need um, and connect you with, with all kinds of things that are available, um, including support. And so you don't have to do it alone. There are those of us who would love to be able to help provide you with tips and resources and just an ear if you need to talk, um, we're here to listen. And so you don't have to do it alone. There are people who've already kind of paved the path um, to be able to help you and help make it easier, um, an easier path for you to walk. Thank you, Tara. That is so impactful, um, everything that you shared. Um, and then all of the resources that are available to people. I am super proud of you. Um, I've had the opportunity to connect with you in my journey um, in one of my church assignments. And I'm so glad that I got to meet you and your family. Likewise. Um, and um, like many people said to you at the beginning, you said in your conversation, people, when they see you, they would never imagine that you've uh, been through some of the things you've been through. 
Um, and I'm so glad that you're here to tell your story. And I'm so glad that you devoted your life, your life's work to helping others as well, make it through the difficult and challenging times uh, in life that are inflicted by abusers. And I, and, I, and I appreciate you for the work that you do. Thank you. Um, and so I want you all to sincerely, I want you guys to go grab this book. You can go to our website, yetstillistand.com. You can follow her on Instagram, Twitter at uh, Tara Alston, T-A-R-A-A-L-S-T-O-N. Um, she's doing some amazing work um, in this field, and it is very necessary. Um, but I want you, those of you that have... Um, people that are in this situation to be sympathetic and understanding of how challenging it is to make an in intentional decision to walk away from abuse. It's not easy as it seems. Um, and even when you make that decision to do it, uh, Tara's made it very clear some of the hurdles uh, that she had to get over to be free, actually be free. There's, there's a difference between leaving and even being free. Um, so again, Tara, thank you so much for the work you're doing. I salute you a hundred percent. Hang in, hang in the uh, the 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 waiting room for me, if you will, um, and we'll chat it up. Um, y'all, listen this 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 podcast. I'm telling y'all when I when I say that it is near and dear to my heart because I have a sister that went through and experienced uh, some of the very same tactics and manipulations and abuse that Tara and so many women and people in general endure, um, that it is important that we draw awareness to this topic, to this subject matter, and that we walk alongside our people, that we are advocates and we are activists on their behalf when they're not able to. I'm so glad to have had this conversation with Tara. I'm a better person for having had it. Um, and like I say, every time before we end this podcast, if you're living for yourself, you are not living at all. And Tara is an example of what it means to live for others, um, doing the work in the trenches, helping people to get free from domestic violence. Um, I am so glad that you all tuned in. Please share this episode. If you share no, none of the episodes, Share this episode because there's so many women that find themselves in the shoes that Tara, Tara found herself in and Dewan found herself in. Um, we'll, re we'll rerun that show as well as a part of Domestic Violence Awareness Month uh, this month. So, all right, we'll talk to y'all the next episode. Next episode, we're talking about breast cancer awareness also for the month of October. Um, and we cannot wait to have the conversation with you. Till next time. Come on, ladies, let's join in. Join in my life, faith, and beauty, and so much more.